You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. This morning is our last sermon in this series through 1 Peter, a series that we have called Hope-Fueled Obedience, right? Because this letter was written to Christians who were in the midst of a great deal of suffering, and the apostle Peter was saying to them, hey, look forward, look forward to the great hope that lies ahead of you and continue in faith and obedience, and, and I was thinking this last week about the idea of obedience and how in reality, acts of obedience are also acts of rebellion. It's just a matter of whose perspective you're looking at it from, right? To obey your parents, for instance, might be to rebel against the desires of your friends, To obey your conscience may be to rebel against the demands of culture, and to obey the Lord is to rebel against the works of Satan. And in each scenario, the opposite is true as well. And I I actually think I like this imagery maybe even a little bit better than obedience, because obedience to me sometimes seems so passive. But rebellion always seems active. And that's what we're called to do in following Jesus. We are called to active rebellion against the enemies of our soul. Active rebellion against the enemies of our relationship with God. Active rebellion against pride and anxiety and and Satan. We aren't called to just passively stay on the right path, because none of us even started on the right path in the first place, and because we are quite prone to just drift off of that path, we have to be active in our obedience to God, active in our rebellion against his enemies. Think about the the story of Cain and Abel. In, in brief, you probably know what happened. Cain and Abel both made sacrifices to God, and Abel's was accepted, and Cain's was rejected. And that made Cain angry. And we don't know why it was rejected, but we know that he knew why it was rejected. And he was angry about it. I want you to see what God says to him in Genesis 4-7. Genesis 4-7, this is before he goes out and kills his brother. Here's what God says. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Other translations put it this way. Sin's desire is to overpower you, to destroy you, to attack you, to dominate you. Sin is coming for you and you must master it. You must overcome it. You must destroy it. You must crush it. You must rebel against the sin in your life. It wants to master you, and you have to master it. We have to live in active rebellion against the enemies of our soul. And to do that is also to live in active obedience to the Lord. And so here in this final chapter of 1 Peter, we're going to be told to live 
in active rebellion against pride and anxiety and the devil himself. And so let me read for us 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to focus our discussion on verses 5 to 11 this morning. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and um, open it up to follow along. It's on the screen as well. And if you picked up one of these Bibles, it's on page 1,119. And, and as always, we want to remind you, these Bibles are here for you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of those with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. All right, here's 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter here, in his final charge, points out three enemies of our soul. Pride, anxiety, and the devil himself. And he tells us to actively rebel against them. And I'm pressing that home because I think it's important that we see that we can't just assume that we will be humble. No one is just humble. You have to choose to be humble. You have to actively choose humility to be humble or to be non-anxious. Those are decisions that we're making. So he says to clothe yourself in humility. He says to cast all of your anxieties on God. He says to resist the devil with a firm faith, to actively rebel against the enemies of our soul. Consider first what he says about pride. He doesn't actually use the word pride, but instead he focuses on its opposite, humility. He says, clothe yourself, all of you, 
with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you. It's an interesting verse because as we read, he's he's just talked about the, the elders. He says these elders are supposed to be leading this younger generation. They're supposed to be submitting to them. And, and that structure maybe makes sense to us, a, a structure of, of those in charge and those who submit. And then he says, now I'm going to talk to all of you. All of you have humility towards all of you, towards one another. He says, yes, there's a specific relationship between pastors and the congregation, but there's a general instruction of mutuality, of shared submission here. And the same thing happens in in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about particular relationships of submission. It also says that we should all submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. So commentator Stephen Mortner says of Peter that he implies that the young men must be submissive to the elders in the same way as elders are submissive to young men. On both sides, there is submission, which recognizes the distinctive gifts and ministry of the others and seeks to serve for Christ's sake. So there's a, there is a special warning here a special warning for pastors who've been given a position of authority. He says that they're to exercise that with humility, right? That's why in the earlier passage there, he talks about some of the pitfalls that might come upon those in positions in their ministry endeavors. He tells us pastors and elders to not be domineering or greedy, but to serve with a willing and and eager heart. And that sort of humble leading is what gives way to humble following, just like the example of Christ. He he actually points to that example of Christ very specifically in verse 4. You see it there where he calls Jesus the chief shepherd. But he actually, in sort of a a hidden way, talks about Jesus in verse 5. And this is amazing. He says, you see that phrase where he says, clothe yourself with humility. That, that actually, those, the words actually are tie humility around you. And, and that image that would come into the minds of everyone at those, at, that was reading this letter would be the image of a servant tying on an, an apron or a towel for work. And in Peter's mind, I'm sure he had a very particular image in mind. We find the image in John chapter 13. So just listen to John 13. It says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What incredible Humility that Jesus, the one that Psalm 93 says is robed in majesty, now clothes himself in humility, tying a servant's towel around his waist. And and you may remember what Jesus says right after he finishes washing their feet in verses 12 to 15. 
when he had washed their feet, he put back on his outer garments. He resumed his place. And then he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Peter, on that night, he had this moment in his mind when he says, when he writes, clothe yourself with humility. That's what it means to be humble. It means to look to serve other people. Look to lay down your privilege and your power for the sake of loving others. It doesn't mean despising yourself or or even thinking any less of yourself. It means with full awareness of who you are, full awareness of the position and the privilege you have to then empty yourself for the sake of others, right? That's what Jesus did. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two that we ought to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. He says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to, a thing to be clenched to. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in humble form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross active rebellion against pride. And and I know that as we think about that, it's a scary place to be, right? Because giving up power and prestige and privilege, not to mention things like money and comfort and security are not easy things to do. But he says, clothe yourself. Clothe yourself with humility. And here's what will happen. In the immediate God will give you grace. And in the eternal, he will exalt you. How are we able to unclench our fist from the things of this world? By trusting in the grace of God. By receiving the grace of God. Trusting the mighty hand of God. What Jesus tells me is that no one can pluck me out of the Father's hand. And that means that I can loosen my grip because his grip is enough. God will give you grace in the immediate, but in the eternal, he will exalt you. That Philippians passage continues on to say that in light of the humility of Christ, the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, sort of the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God promises here that you too will be exalted in the proper time. But but almost as if he understands the difficulty of such humility, Peter moves without hesitation to anxiety 
calling us to actively rebel against anxiety as well. Not so much as a a second thing on, on the list, but more like a continuation of the first. Part of humbling yourself is casting all of your anxieties on the Lord. And Pastor John Piper makes this clear by giving some examples. He says, what does it mean to be humble? It means when you've made a mistake, admitting it and saying you're sorry. It means when you're weak or sick or inadequate for a task, not being too proud to ask for help. It means doing ordinary jobs and spending time with ordinary people and being indifferent to accolades. In other words, in all forms of humility, it is the risk of losing face. Humility is the risk of not being noticed, not being appreciated, not being praised, not being rewarded. Lowliness runs the risk, the obvious risk of being looked down upon. And being looked down upon is painful. Being unnoticed and unappreciated is painful. Losing face is painful. Being made little of is painful. And therefore, humility causes anxiety. And the command to be humble under God and to be clothed with humility towards each other makes us anxious. And so you may be anxious to consider that. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to tell them all the ways that the laws that they thought that they were obeying were actually bigger. They're bigger than what they thought. And they begin to think about how they're supposed to give everything away. And then he tells them, when you're going to be anxious about that, just remember the flowers. They don't toil or spin, but God takes care of them. They're dressed with more splendor, right? Consider the birds. They're not storing up, but God takes care of them. So he gives the command that causes anxiety. And then he says, I'm the solution to your anxiety because I will provide for you. We're called to an active rebellion against this enemy of our soul. Active rebellion. We aren't simply told to not be anxious. That's not helpful. Hey, don't be anxious. What am I supposed to do with that? He says, no, cast it. Take hold of your anxiety and throw them onto God. Cast them into the mighty hand of God that you are humbled under. It's one of the great promises of Scripture that our God always stands ready to work for us, right? Unlike all the other gods, all the other so-called gods of the world demand that their followers work for them, our God, the true God, the God who abounds in mercy, is always willing to work for us. The disappointment is how often we are unwilling to let him. He says, come to me, come to me and I will give you rest. And we say, no, I'll work it out. I'll work it out on my own. I got it. He says, I will carry you. I will sustain you. I will save you. And then we look to do all of those things in our own power. The the prophet Isaiah says, no, I has seen a God besides him who works for those who wait on him. But waiting is not one of those things that we particularly like to do. We want to get it done. It causes us anxiety to have to wait. And here we're told to cast our anx- all your anxieties, it says, upon him, which indicates that we are casting them 
off of us. Cast them off of yourself and onto him. And how do you do that? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians, at the very least, we do that in prayer. Right? He tells us to be anxious for nothing, but instead to let our request be made known to God in prayer. And then he promises us a peace that is beyond understanding. A peace that is beyond understanding. In, in addition to pray, we might consider this as well. Consider what your anxiety actually has to connect to your pride. Because when we are desperate, for things to be just right, we will be anxious about getting them there, right? We talk about pride, pride in always being the one who follows through, pride in being the person who always has the answer. We, we want to put ourselves on display to look a certain way so that no one can see perhaps the secrets that we're hiding back there, right? We begin to care about all of those prideful issues. And what we will find is that those things become our masters, the masters that we anxiously serve all day long. That's why Commentator Edmund Clowney says, the very act of casting our cares upon the Lord changes them. It changes them. And he gives us this biblical example. He says, in the village of Bethany, Martha was preparing dinner for Christ and his disciples, and she was distracted with the concerns of a hostess and resented the fact that her sister Mary was just listening to Jesus instead of helping her. And when she complained, Jesus gently rebuked her because in her anxiety about the many dishes of the dinner, she had forgotten the one serving that actually counted, the serving that Mary had chosen. Martha's many concerns grew from her pride. Pride that all the dishes would be just right. Pride that the house would look just so. But when we cast our cares, when we cast our anxieties on the Lord, we often find that they were the concerns from our pride, not the cares of the kingdom of God. In active rebellion against the enemy of anxiety, we cast them onto the Lord. And what's his promise? Well, in the immediate, he promises that he cares for us. And in the eternal, he promises that he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Think about that. We aren't called to cast our anxiety on an uncaring, impotent God, but on the almighty and infinitely loving God. He cares for you. It isn't just that he cares, but hear me, he cares for you, for you. And because he cares for you, you can trust him with all of your worries. He cares for you now, and he will eternally restore you. Peter says, yes, yes, you're suffering right now. Yes, there are many things to be anxious about, but God will make it eternally all right. He says, Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But rest assured of this. 
that there is one person who does not want you to be humble. And he does not want you to be at peace. He wants you destroyed. And that is the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. We were once his faithful servants, every one of us. We were born into this world enslaved to him, bound in our sin. But Jesus came to set us free. Satan has been defeated, but he's still on the prowl. He is still out to get us. And so we must live in active rebellion against him. Listen to verses 8 and 9 again. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It seems to me that part of what Peter is saying here is don't be naive to think that Satan isn't coming for you. And don't be complacent to think he can't devour you. He is out to kill you. Peter knows it well. Jesus told Peter to watch and pray so that he wouldn't fall into temptation. You know what he did? He fell asleep and then he fell into temptation and he fell hard into sin. Christian counselor Jay Adams says, Christians asleep to the wiles of the devil will fall easy prey to him. Sexual infidelity, divisiveness, envy, and the like strike down more Christians than the Roman sword ever did. Though valiant out in the open battlefield, the very same Christian soldier may be brought low by the devil's sniper behind the lines. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. We have to be ever vigilant, active in our rebellion against the enemy. Resist him at every turn. We have been given, you have been given everything you need to resist the devil and his work. Ephesians 6 lays out a whole armor of God that you have. You've been given it. We can stand firm and fight against the works of Satan. The danger is not that we're helpless. The danger is that we're unprepared. The danger is when we don't watch and pray. The danger is when we don't put on the armor of God. We fail to resist. We give up and we give in. Listen, I've had a lot of people tell me that they are struggling with sin. And what I have found is that most of them, most of us, aren't struggling with sin at all. We've simply thrown up our hands and said, it's too hard, I'm giving up, and I'm giving in. We need to be active in our rebellion. We need to struggle against sin. Resist the devil, he says. Fight with a firm faith. But that is hard to do. That is hard to do. And so we're instructed to remember these two things. Even now, you are not alone. And in all of eternity, all dominion belongs to God. He says in verse 9, to remember that your brothers and sisters around the world and throughout the ages are facing the same sorts of suffering. You are not alone when it comes to your suffering. And you are not alone when it comes to temptation either. 
We're told that no temptation has overtaken us, but what is common to man, you are not alone. If you are facing temptation today, I can tell you this, you're not the first person to face it and you won't be the first person to beat it. It is conquerable in Christ. We are not alone. And our God reigns forever. His dominion is forever. Peter says, watch out for the devil because he prowls around like a roaring lion. But I remember the faithfulness of God to Daniel when he was thrown into a whole den full of lions. Yes, Satan has power and he loves to make noise, but our God reigns supreme. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that he uses the image of a lion here, a roaring lion, because Jesus is described as a lion as well the lion of the tribe of Judah. And according to Revelation 5, he's the lion who has conquered. But when John looked up to see this lion who had conquered, the lion who had won, what he saw was a lamb that looked like it had been slain. Because the victory that has been won over Satan was won when he laid down his life for you and me. It is by the blood of the lamb that Satan has been defeated. Jesus humbled himself. He entered into a place of deep anxiety and he laid down his life. And just when Satan thought that he had won, Jesus rose again from the dead. He defeated him in full. So even now, Satan is prowling around and he is roaring, but he already knows he's defeated. And according to scripture, he is defeated by God at our hands, but more specifically at our feet. Because what we're told in Romans is that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. And so resist him. Resist him, because if you're trusting in Christ, you are on the side of victory. If you have repented and believed in Jesus, you are not alone, and your God reigns forever. Hope-fueled obedience. Hope-fueled rebellion. May God give us the strength each day to live lives, lives of active rebellion against the enemies of our soul because the victory is ours, because the victory is his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the victory is yours. You have won already by the blood of the lamb. Lord, you have won. You rose again from the dead and you have won. And so while we are in the midst of a battle now, we are on the side of victory. And so we pray, Lord, that we would take hold of the victory that you have won for us already. Help us to stand firm in that victory and help us to rebel against all the works of the enemy in active obedience to you and active rebellion against the enemies of our soul. We pray in Christ's name, amen.